0: Joshua 22 from verse 1, at that time Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, you have kept all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. Now to one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other side, Joshua had given a possession besides their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, go back to your tents with very much wealth and very much livestock with silver, gold, bronze and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we come to you in weakness, always in weakness. So, Spirit of strength and power, please so fill us that these words which you spoke may not simply become transparent to us, but may change us, that we may be conformed to the likeness of the one who came in weakness and was raised in glory, our Lord Jesus. For in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Let me welcome you particularly if you're visiting us today. I see one or two, well, either unfamiliar faces or faces which are familiar from other contexts. It is wonderful to have you with us. We're very grateful to God that you've joined us. We hope you enjoy your time with us today. Every Lord's Day, here at All Saints, we kneel and we confess our sins. And the reason is very simple. We kneel to confess our sins because we are all, every last one of us, wayward souls. Ever prone to drift and wander from the path of righteousness, ever needing to return to the Lord, and the only way to return to the Lord is on our knees. And so we adopt this routine of corporate confession, where we say with our bodily posture what we know needs to be true of our hearts. We make ourselves low. We humble ourselves. Perhaps you can remember the first time you did this, Perhaps you were raised in a church which whose practice was not to ask the congregation to kneel and then you joined one that did. That might have been the first time you ever knelt to pray. Wasn't it strange? And have you noticed, especially those of you who are accustomed to this kind of confession, that sometimes that moment strikes you with more forcefulness than usual Sometimes you've been more wayward than usual. Maybe even today, you landed on your knees somewhat more heavily than usual. As you look back over just the last few days and call to mind those regrets and those missed opportunities and those foolish and frankly just sinful and godless decisions and things you've done and said. And so it's possible, if that's the case, that today's sermon may speak slightly more loudly to you than to everybody else. I hope and pray that it will speak to all of us. Today's sermon is entitled, An Advent Exhortation for Wandering Souls. Every last one of us, wandering souls. And my plan is to do what I, something similar to what I did a couple of weeks ago. I, I preached a similar-ish sermon in form, An Advent Meditation for Wounded Souls, where I tried to meander through all the scripture readings set for Advent, as well as picking up a bit of Joshua, I just can't resist Joshua, um, and the. <laughs> Those of you who are regulars here know why we've been working our way through the book of Joshua and I'm determined. We shall finish and you shall finish with me. So we've got a bit of Joshua thrown in. And as I said, not a traditional Advent reading, but nonetheless it speaks to us about Advent. Advent is, well the word means arrival, doesn't it? And so Advent we both look back to and celebrate the first Advent or first arrival of our Lord Jesus and then we anticipate and think about how we might wisely prepare ourselves for his last advent, his final coming in glory when he will judge the living and the dead. And so the question is, how should we prepare? That's the question I want to lay before you today. How should wandering souls prepare for the advent of the King of Kings? How should wandering souls prepare for the coming of the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, the Most Holy One, the Rose of Sharon, the Son of God himself, who will break the rulers of the nations with an iron scepter and yet bless all those who come to him? in faithfulness and repentance, how should we prepare? I suggest in humility. I suggest we should seek the renewal that only he brings, that he only brings to those who come to him in brokenness. I suggest we should seek him with repentance. We might even discover today some new sins, something we hadn't even realized we were doing wrong. I hope that's the case, actually, for some of us in Luke chapter 2, when we turn there in just a moment. And we should return to him with the resolute commitment to walk in faithfulness to him. One of the interesting things about the the term faith, faith, such a familiar term in both Old and New Testaments, which we take to indicate a disposition of our hearts, and that's true, it's what it indicates that, but the same word in Greek and Hebrew is also translated faithfulness in other contexts, because it has that meaning as well. True biblical faith is faithfulness, commitment, allegiance to the Messiah. And so I take it that as we await his coming, it's not Jesus' is coming, look busy, but Jesus' is coming, get faithful, get ready so that when he walks in the room we shall not be ashamed. Let me begin our journey with you at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2, which seems for all the world like such a matter-of-fact and straightforward reading, doesn't it? If you've got a Bible, just open it with me and, and look in Luke 2. And by the way, let me encourage you if, you, if you don't customarily bring a Bible to church, you might think about doing so. I'm not requiring it, I'm very far from that. But, and I think there's something good about hearing the reading of the Word, but just to be able to look and see some of the things we look at in more detail. So Luke chapter 2... A fairly straightforward-looking description of the the birth of Jesus. Caesar Augustus issues this decree that all the world should be registered in verse 1. And everyone goes up to their own town, and Joseph and Mary go up as well. And in verses 6 and 7, the baby arrives. There we are. All looks very calm, doesn't it? All looks very placid. A very matter-of-fact and straightforward beginning to Jesus' life on earth. Yet I want to suggest to you right here that there is something very ominous. There are rumblings below the surface. There is something moving in the dark waters of this lake. The first clue, actually, is in verse 1 and 2. If you look closely, did you notice the political overtones? Look with me at verse 1. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus, the great emperor of Rome that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when, and we've got another secular leader of the ancient world, Corinius, was governor of Syria. There is a hint here of the tension that lay in the background of first century Judea. This was not a placid and calm time. It was an uneasy half-peace with these pagan tyrants ever threatening to do the kind of crazy manipulative thing which, while well, Caesar Augustus commands here, And that unease is confirmed by precisely what Caesar commands. Look, uh, verse 1. Caesar Augustus issued this decree, quote, (laughs) would you believe it, that all the world should be registered. This was a census, probably in preparation for taxation. And all the people went, yay, because don't we just love it? In other words, what he's doing really, he's counting his subjects so that he may know where they are and who they are and where they live. And how many there are in preparation for taxing them like tyrants down the ages love to do. So this doesn't make it a particularly warm and smooth beginning. It starts to look rather like the wrong kind of political power. And it gets worse when you start thinking this is not just a a Roman account of a census being uh, enacted. This is in the scriptures. And we know if you think... What are censuses supposed to evoke in your minds as you think biblically? Can you think of any biblical censuses? What is the plural of census, by the way? Is it censuses? Sensei? Sensei? I'm not going with sense. That's ridiculous. Censuses. I'm not going to say it many more times. We won't have to put up with it. You think of David in um, uh, 2 Samuel 24. His census didn't go well, did it? Where... For reasons that seem a little bit complicated, the Lord was furious with him and acted in judgment against him and the people of Israel very rapidly. It's not obvious why. Maybe it was simple pride. The great King David, look at my great nation. Like a spoiled brat of a six-year-old who can't stop counting his pocket money. Or an adult who can't stop checking his investments. Look at all my wealth. Look at all my riches. Look at my great nation. Perhaps it was... Not just that, it might have been an echo of the sort of pagan power that David, as king of Israel, was specifically to reject. Remember 1 Samuel 8, where Samuel said, this king that you want is going to rule you and tax you and domineer you and be a tyrant over you because you want a king, quote, like all the other nations. And here's David behaving like a king like all the other nations, getting ready to go to war, which is what the nations of the world do and that's exactly the kind of king or emperor that caesar augustus is isn't it this unbelievable act of self-aggrandizement look at how luke records it in in verse one it's hilarious isn't it that all the world should be ready really This is, obviously, it's not literally all the world, but it reflects the attitude that Caesar Augustus had to his own power and his own wealth and his own strength and his own empire and his own everything. Me, 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 me. His imperial pretensions. And then just look, I mean, the the details are so rich here. By the way, check, look out for a podcast in a couple of weeks. I had a wonderful opportunity to talk this last week with an old friend of mine, James B. John, who's a biblical scholar, who is just a master at looking at the details of scripture one of the things we talked about is the significance of numbers in the scriptures and look here how many times does it say registered or registration in this passage you count one verse one two and verse two three there's one in verse three and then verse five registered four times because why earth has got four corners the whole world all the four corners of the world need to be registered All the world is mine, so all the world can jolly well pay tribute to me, says Caesar Augustus. That's the world into which this baby David, baby Jesus, sorry, comes. Oops, did I just give something away? Well, yes, obviously. But it gets worse even than that when you start to think about the practicalities of the situation. Verse 3, what's this going to mean for Mary and Joseph? Verse 3, all went to be registered, each to his hometown. Just think of it. This decree comes down from, I don't know, our state governor. Probably wouldn't do something quite that dumb, would he? In fact, I suspect not. It seems like a a wise man and a guy we should give thanks for. But it's possible to imagine, isn't it? In various jurisdictions across the world. But think of the stupidity of it. You've got to go back home to Louisiana, where you came from or to Chicago, where you came from, or to Florida, so you can go to your hometown to be registered. That's okay for you. You could fly there. still be pretty inconvenient, wouldn't it? Imagine it's 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and your wife is pregnant, and you've got to walk. This is not just some minor inconvenience. This is a dangerous journey that is being required of you by this tyrant king, grotesquely, overreaching the authority given him by God as a civil ruler. So how does Joseph respond? Well, you know where this is going, right, don't you? Because how does Joseph, the soon-to-be adoptive father of the Son of God, the soon-to-be husband of the Mother of God, how does he respond to this horrific act of tyranny? Well, we all know what we'd like him to have done, wouldn't we? I tell you what, you could really preach this, the All Saints Standard Version. And each of them went to be registered, each to his hometown, but Joseph, being a righteous man, refused to comply with the imperial edict, declaring his allegiance to a new king. He stood firm against Caesar's tyranny. Man, you could preach that. But what he actually does, verse 4, and Joseph also went up, meekly obeying the tyrant emperor to his hometown, to the town of, well, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house of lineage of David. So what is this? So the holy family begin their scene on the stage of history with this act of political compliance with a tyrant pagan. I want to say yes and no. Yes, in the sense that he does what he's told. Well, here is a rebuke to anarcho-libertarians everywhere. (laughs) Clearly, clearly the faithful Christian response to political tyranny is not always to refuse to obey an unjust command. Apparently, to refuse to comply whenever Caesar oversteps the mark is not how we ought to respond to a tyrant, even one like this, who puts your wife's life in danger. So yes, an act of political compliance, but stop it, stop it, stop it. Just look below the surface, look more closely. This is a a subversive act of compliance. I don't know how much Joseph understood about this, I suspect quite a lot, but Luke makes it clear in his account of it, doesn't he? Look, he went up from the town of Nazareth to where exactly? To the city of David, to the city of the great king, to the city of one who would have a greater son who would sit on Israel's throne and judge the nations. And who are you to be going up there, Joseph? Well, just incidentally, end of verse four, of the house and lineage of David. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll comply with your edict. I'll go. We'll have the baby somewhere else. We'll walk 90 miles because I've really thought about those songs that my wife sang. I've really thought about what the living God is actually doing here. While the people of God are being crushed under the weight of pagan tyranny and, frankly, ungodly leadership among their own people, I've really thought, you know, this child is something special. Just remember back to chapter 1, the song that Mary sang. Chapter 1, verse 51. Maybe this child, verse 51, is the one who has shown strength with his arm. Maybe this child is one who will scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Maybe this child is the one who will bring down the mighty from their thrones and exalt those of humble estate. Maybe this child is the one who will feed the hungry. Maybe this child is the one who will send the rich, the arrogant, godless, non-God-fearing rich, empty away. Maybe this child is the one who will help Israel. Maybe this child is the one who will fulfill the promises that God made to Abraham. That the people of God will be like stars, that is to say, kings themselves, ruling the nations under heaven. Just maybe. Can you imagine the conversations between Mary and Joseph as they're trying to figure out? They're doing political theology on the fly in first century Judea. As they await the birth of Messiah. And it's like Mary's like, hey Joseph, look, I'm a little bit worried because, you know, Eight and a half months. You know, it's a long journey, Joseph. And this little, you know, and, and besides, aren't, aren't we in danger of just bowing down and doing, you know, Caesar says jump, and we say, how high? And Joseph is like, no, there's no bowing involved, Mary. No. Where, remember that song you sang? Where does the power lie? Look at these verses. Who is the most world-shapingly powerful individual in Luke 6, 1-7? He's the one you can't even see. You see, we live so much by sight, don't we? We imagine that the world is shaped by what we see, not by faith. The most powerful man in the world is not Caesar Augustus. One day, Joseph... Caesar Augustus will be dead and Jesus will still be alive. And how many people will be registered in his name? Well, (laughs) kind of measured in the billions as of now, marked with baptism, registered in the name of Jesus, ready, having paid to Caesar what is Caesar's, to give to God what is God's. I think Joseph is um, he's a, he's a kind of undersung hero in the Gospels. I think we're supposed to liken him slightly to Boaz, because probably older man, probably younger woman, about to give birth, a few generations on, to a Davidic figure. Think of Ruth's uh, narrative in the book of Ruth. He's the one, well, Boaz, certainly, insofar as he is a type of, Jesus, of um, Joseph, is the one who shows us that if you're just willing to wait for a few generations, like if you're just willing to wait for a thousand generations, then you'll see who's the most powerful king in the world. He's the one who's not yet been born, well, who now has. We're only 80 generations on, and we're already measuring one point something billion who claim the name of Jesus Christ, and nobody paying allegiance to Augustus. So doesn't it rebuke the shallowness of our political ideologies, the how we worry and become anxious by what happened yesterday and what happened this afternoon and what might happen next week or next month or next year? And God just says, "Look, <laughs> thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, you have been told that what's going to happen is Jesus is going to win. So will you quit worrying about little tin pot tyrants like the emperor of Rome? Now these themes are picked up in our other readings. I want to spend a little bit less time on Isaiah 35 and Philippians 2, but they're wonderful texts and and, um, among my favourites in Isaiah is um, Isaiah 35. Um, You just might want to flick back to it. Uh, Isaiah 35 depicts the restoration of the people of God as being like the restoration of a barren wilderness. Look at verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. And so you've got this picture of dusty, dry, rock-hard ground springing to bloom. That's a picture of the renewal and transformation that the Messiah brings. And it is the transformation of the people of God because, verse 10, well, either it is or it prepares for their renewal because, verse 10, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So the people of God will be transformed and renewed like a desert, like something that could not produce flowers, producing flowers. Just go back a few steps to where we were hmm, 20 minutes ago to the wandering souls in your best moments isn't that what you want to be you feel like the desert and you actually want to produce fruit you actually want to produce the fruit of the spirit to which you're called and it is not the case merely that god's gift consists in the forgiveness of your sins though it does it is the case that God's gift consists in the transformation that makes a renewed life possible. He doesn't just forgive the desert for being barren and leave it desert. He transforms it and makes it a crocus-filled wilderness. My wife and I, when Ben was very small, we went to South Africa, and people were saying, you know, we, we were visiting for a, a few weeks actually, staying with some missionary friends of ours, and we're like, okay, what, what sites should we go and see in South Africa? And um, they said, well, you should go to one of the national parks. We went to Hlifui Game Reserve and saw these. And we had an elephant five yards away from our car, far closer than you're supposed to. It's, it crept up on us, honest. It's not like we were sneaking after it. Honest, we weren't. You don't do that with elephants. They squish it. Um, <laughs> and so we, and we should see the coast. We should see the sardine run. And then somebody said, you should see the flowers. You should see the flowers. Because I forget the name of the place. And I don't remember whether we even went there. Did we even get there? We didn't go there. But there's this place where the, the sight of the wild flowers in spring is just like nothing on earth. That's the kind of renewal and transformation that the Messiah brings. Of course, in Isaiah, it's set against a similarly dark backdrop. This is actually the climax of the, well, really the first half of the book of Isaiah. Well, I mean, there's a kind of 36, 38, 39, down to about 39. Which is a kind of narrative interlude before the second half begins properly. But really, chapter 35 of Isaiah comes at the end of a whole series of oracles of judgment against the nations. It's like a prophetic version of Luke 2. Luke 2 says, Well, here's Caesar. What do you think of him? Here comes a baby. Watch out. Isaiah is a bit more explicit pronouncing judgments again and again on all the nations around Israel, Babylon and Assyria and Philistia and Moab and Damascus and Egypt. He includes the unfaithful within Israel, who, interestingly, the unfaithful in Israel are described as those who go down to Egypt for help. That is to say, who trust in pagan power to liberate them and don't turn to the Lord, Isaiah 31.1. So, against that background of the Lord acting in judgment against pagan power everywhere, inside and outside the people of God. He then promises a new king, thirty-two-two, and that new king will bring this transformation that he's promised. So you've got a very simple choice to make. It's like, which side are you on? You're going to go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and try and transform the world in the way that pagan kings do by counting their strength, or do you trust in the one of whom Isaiah spoke, perhaps with greater clarity than anybody except King David himself in the Psalms? The humble kid, baby, who's born who will transform the world a few hundred years after he prophesied. So that's the choice you've got before you. And you know how to hear Isaiah's words. If you think of Isaiah 35.5, For those who are willing to embrace this Messiah, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Remember, this is when um, in Luke 7, the disciples of John the Baptist go to Jesus and they say, Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect somebody else? And Jesus answers by quoting this, then shall the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute shout for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, turning this desert into a garden. Yes, I'm the one who was to come. Yeah, that's right. So all those who are shattered by sin and, and, you know, the, the healings in the Gospels are... They're not just healings, you know, there are pictures of the effects of sin being overthrown, aren't they? All those who, who are blinded by their own sinful foolishness, all of those who are made unclean by their wickedness, all of those who are lame and weak, all of those who, are, who landed on their knees slightly more heavily than usual this morning, arise and live and welcome the Messiah, Isaiah 35. Philippians 2, of course, echoes very similar themes, although in a very different way. It's talking uh, in Philippians 2, just as in Luke 2, about the path to the conquest of the world. Luke 2 says the way to conquer the world is to have this little baby, the helpless one. Philippians 2 says the path to the conquest of the world is the path of humility. It's the path of servanthood and of self-emptying. That's a very literal and very good translation of uh, he made himself nothing, emptied himself and sacrificed himself. And you see this in the depiction of Jesus' life. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He really could teach Caesar a thing or two, couldn't he? Caesar is there the god of the nations and who really made the nations well you just declared it in the reading that we all read before our confession of sin the earth is the lord's and all it contains the world and all those who dwell in it and yet as the one whose word no better than that who is the word by whom all those things were spoken into being he came into all those things and made himself nothing and took on the likeness of it doesn't say servant it says slave the one whose very life and being is deliberately placed at everybody else's disposal, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And therefore, that is to say, for that reason, Philippians 2 says it was because Jesus made himself nothing and then kept going in that direction... As low as he could go, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. So not at the name of Caesar, but at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. And if you're willing to serve, therefore, if you're willing to sacrifice, and if you're willing to wait, you may walk in his footsteps. Because that's the, that's the rhetorical purpose of um, Philippians 2, In it, it's normally, no, not normally, I'll say, it's, um, it's often taken as a kind of theological text speaking about Christology, and it does, obviously, speaks about um, the, the two natures of Christ and yada yada, rich, deep theological text, but what's the purpose? I love the translation of the New International Version at this point, now you won't hear me saying that very often, actually, but, uh, no, I, actually, I do love the New International Version, I've read it for years, Your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus, verse 5. Or, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What mind's that? Well, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count yourselves more significant than yourselves. See, you're not supposed to count your people to tax them. You're supposed to count yourself insignificant. Different kind of counting is required of the people of God, isn't it? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, you can tell who the people are who are going to rule the world. They're the ones on their knees. And our final reading in Joshua 22. Having been brought low, well, what next? Uh... A word of context, just for those of you who would value a reminder, or those of you who haven't been with us for the whole narrative of Joshua, the book of Joshua tells the history of the conquest of the land of Canaan by the people of God after the death of Moses. And in the early chapters, you first have them entering the land and surveying it, and then fighting for it, and then apportioning it among themselves. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 21, we are told that all of God's promises have been fulfilled. Everything has come to pass. All the things that God promised that he would do, he has done. And now the question is, well, what next? And the answer is, you settle down in the land and wait for the king. Why? Well, because you remember Genesis 3, you remember... Uh, Genesis 22, you remember Genesis 49, you remember all the hidden and not so hidden promises of kingship. Israel will one day have a king that is not just their king but the king of the nations and he's he's not ready to come yet but you've got to settle down and wait for the king. You see it's an advent reading, Mm, kind of. You know what I did there? Just about made it, right? How do we prepare for the long haul as we're waiting for the king to come? Well uh, At that time, verse 1, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They're the people whose inheritance was on the east of the Jordan and they had to be sent home with some final warnings and exhortations which might very well serve as Advent exhortations for us as we await our king. Let me show you a couple of these things. Verse 2. Joshua said to them, You have kept all... But Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And everyone who hasn't been reading Joshua lately goes, oh yeah, fair enough. And everyone who has goes, what? The people of Manasseh have kept the word of God? The people of Manasseh have been... What about chapter 17? Remember the bit where they said, we've got the largest inheritance of any tribe in Israel and we'd like more, but not that bit because it's too difficult. Does that count as faithfulness? Does that count as faithfulness? Apparently, it does. See, it turns out that what the Lord counts as you have kept all the commandments, you have obeyed my voice, you have not forsaken, you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. What... The Lord counts as faithful, not sinless perfection, but faithfulness to the covenant. And the covenant contains within it provision for people like us who transgress its requirements. The covenant contains sacrificial provision. The covenant means that you, when you wander astray, when you return to the Lord return to be clothed with the righteousness of Joshua, Jesus, so that he can stand over you and pronounce, so you've kept, you've been faithful, you've been careful, you've done all that I commanded you. Because all I commanded was walk in these ways, which includes when you don't walk in these ways, come back bearing the sacrifice that you're commanded to, to bring. It strikes me, it's really funny. The first time I noticed this, it was years ago, I was listening to this elderly preacher in London called Dick Lucas, uh, who has an even more English accent than me. <laughs> really does. And um, he was, he was uh, preaching from Romans. It was hilarious, like Romans is. <laughs> and there's that moment in Romans 4, where Paul says of Abraham... He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promises of God. I'm like, what version of Genesis has Paul got? Where Abraham didn't waver through unbelief. Abraham didn't distrust the promises of God. He's got the same version of Genesis as us. He's got a version of Genesis where wavering for those who come back is called not wavering. So come back. Come back to the one who will look at your sin and say, yeah, 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 no, we've dealt with that. Righteous. Come back to the one who will look at your wavering and your faithlessness and your weakness and all the things this last week that caused you to land heavily on your knees. Come back to the one who will say, yeah, I know, yeah, as far as the east is from the west, remember? Prepare for his coming. And now walk in his ways. As Jesus said, go and sin no more. Or as Joshua says, and we'll finish with this. Verse 5. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. And then five parts of this instruction. To love the Lord your God please can we stop talking about like old testament is all about legalistic regulations and the new testament is all about loving god (laughs) to love the lord your god to walk in his ways can we stop talking about yeah i trust in jesus so it doesn't matter what i do no walk on the path stay on the path to keep his commandments and to cling to him literally to cleave to him same word is used of um, marriage in genesis 2 to grasp him like, well, almost like the bride might grasp her groom (laughs) and to serve him, to be a slave to him with all your heart and with all your soul. And then Jesus will bless you and send you away and you can go to your tents. To your tents, O Israel, blessed by Jesus the King, who's coming, we await. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we praise you for the grace that has been extended to us to cover our sins and the peace which is ours because our sins have been covered. Teachers, we pray to love you and to walk in your ways and to keep your commandments and to cling to you that we may serve you all our days with all our heart and with all our soul. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.